Hello and welcome to the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. This podcast updates you with the expertise and current insight of the Washington, D.C.-based attorneys from the Fortney Scott Law Firm. Each episode highlights the most important issues and analysis that employers need to know in order to understand and react to key federal developments affecting their business. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. Now let's turn it over to our host. Hi, everyone. This is Nita Beecher from Fortney Scott, and I'm filling in as a moderator for David Fortney today for the DC Insider, What Employers Need to Know. First, I'd like to welcome my colleagues, Bert Fishman. Hi, Bert. Hi, Nita. Hi, Liz. Good to be back on the podcast. Great. And our colleague, Liz Bradley. Hi, Liz. Nice to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me to join you today. Well, we've got a really hot topic today. We're going to be talking about the NLRB, and I feel like we're going back to 2011, 2014, (laughs) all over again to talk about how the NLRB's latest decisions are going to impact all businesses, not just unionized businesses. And so, you know, it's just a reminder to everyone that Section 7 of the NLRA covers every non-supervisory employee. And so whether they have a union or not. So, Bert, to kick this off, let's talk about the most recent decision on joint employment, which, as we know, is a very, very, I say hot, but maybe supernova for employers. Yeah, it sure is. And it's one of these instances where a kind of small decision in a small jurisdiction can have national implications. There was a recent ruling by the board which may change the law for all employers and even change the way they do business. And it has to do with who is a joint employer. A regional director in Texas recognized a group of contractors employed by a local company that was working at YouTube And it determined that they were really employees. By denominating them as employees, it permitted them to form a union. And they did. They voted for an election, even though Google, which owns YouTube, objected. And even though objections were pending, there was an election. The group voted, I think, unanimously to become a union. And for the first time in its history, Google is now facing the prospect of collectively bargaining with a union. And for Google, this is kind of existential because over half of its workers are contractors. So for me, this is a kind of total game changer. And it's a look into what the pending NLRB's joint employer regulations may look like. And the questions that I have is, you know, first off, can the board make this decision without a final regulation? And on A more national level, can a simple decision by a regional director in Texas potentially affect how thousands of employers staff their businesses and run their businesses? So, you know, the NLRB, everybody thinks of them as just being this kind of 1930s outfit that only works with unions. And here's an example of how it can have a macroeconomic impact. I think that's really important because, you know, one of the problems has always been in the Democrats, especially in the Obama administration, and I think, again, in the Biden administration, are looking for ways to transform non-employees into employees. And this is one of those. And in fact, Bert, you just mentioned it. There is a pending regulation 
because the Trump board had issued a joint employer reg and there's a pending a regulation to change all that. But in this case, like something that the FTC did recently, the board went ahead and ruled before their regulation was in place, as the FTC has done on the non-compete ban that they're proposing. Yeah, it seems to be a infectious disease. <laughs> Liz, the board is also expected to reverse an employer-friendly decision in Boeing And that really relates to employers' rules of conduct. And I think it's really important, again, we're talking about rules of conduct, not just for unionized workforces, but for non-union as well. So how is this going to play out, do you think? Yeah. And again, to highlight that, this decision is going to impact all employers across the board, not just those who have a unionized workforce. And because it impacts your employee policies, you may be in violation, depending on if the test gets changed, your existing workplace policies could subject you to a Section 7 violation unbeknownst to a non-unionized workforce employer. So you need to really be looking at this. The other issue, and the, the case is the stericycle case, but the other really important thing about this is it gives you a great vignette of how the board's opinions change based on the administration, and how they can always rely on some sort of prior precedent to support what they want to go back to. And it's always a movement back to something that their position they had taken previously. 2017, when Boeing came out, the board found that the board had, quote, lost its way in preceding years by invalidating what they called common sense rules and requirements that employees would expect most employers to have. And they took and established a test and they relied on a case, Republic Aviation from 1945. So they did look back at board precedent in developing a very reasonable balanced test for determining whether a workplace policy is going to interfere with Section 7 activity. And under Boeing, it's a two-step test. It's first looking at it from an objective employee perspective, not the prism of the NLRA. And the concept here is they are not going to invalidate a policy merely because it could be interpreted under some hypothetical version of events to potentially somehow interfere with Section 7 activity. And then under Boeing, it's also the second prong is looking at the nature and extent of the potential impact into Section 7 activities and balancing that with legitimate justifications. So in the Stericycle case, and the board wants to overturn or reverse the Boeing decision, and they've criticized it, one, based on well-established precedents, which I'm not sure that's a founded criticism, but the other is saying that Boeing was not based on public comment. So in the public comments, they ask some sort of generic questions about how should it be modified. But some real telling questions that they asked in the public comments were whether policies that had provisions that investigations would be maintained confidential, policies about non-discrimination, 
and whether policies prohibiting outside employment should still be permissible under Section 7. So, I mean, I think that gives us insight on where they want to go in the decision. And we do expect this decision to come out promptly. So the comment period has closed and we are expecting opinion on this very shortly. It's really interesting because what we are seeing with the current general counsel, Abruzzo, is a complete switch in the way, Liz, you were just talking about Boeing and how common sense that employees would look at rules and that type of thing. We're seeing the complete opposite with Abruzzo feeling like if there's any possibility that someone would feel intimidated or would not exercise their rights, and we talked about this in the severance agreement situation as well, I think she's taking that whole approach. And that's the exact same logic that Boeing rejected and saying you need to have a common sense approach. So this is the exact back and forth administration driven often changes that we get in board precedent. Well, Stericycle using that and turning, that's one of the issues because it talks about confidentiality investigations. And Bert, you know, another area where EEOC and uh, the NLRB bumped heads, I think is the only way to put it during the Obama administration, is this sort of what can employers do when employees use racial or other kinds of harassing language, sexual harassment language, allegedly in union-related activities. And Liz talked about Stericycle will also impact the investigations, whether there can be confidential What is the latest from the board about when employers can actually terminate employees for those kinds of behaviors? Well, oddly enough, this is probably the case that has engaged uh, people outside of the NLRB world most. And it has to do with the use of uh, racist, sexist, homophobic, and abusive language. Let's go back two years. There was a case called General Motors. And in that case, the board finally uh, brought itself to recognize that conduct that is in violation of possible violation of Title VII or of state uh, fair employment laws, such as using racist, sexist, homophobic, and abusive and otherwise foul language, can be grounds for discipline, even if it takes place in the context of a plainly union situation, collective bargaining negotiations, grievance disputes. It didn't matter. If you use that kind of offensive language, it could be the grounds for discipline if it would be in any other situation. The EEOC particularly, and a number of members of Congress, had been lobbying the board for years, and they finally made the change. But just two years later, and a couple of weeks ago, in a case with a great name, Lion Elastomers, All these cases have these wonderful names because they're based on the businesses that are involved. It's not like Brown versus Board. You really have to get into these strange names. Well, Lion Elastomers, this board reversed General Motors and explicitly supported language and conduct that would be universally condemned because harsh language, and that's a quote, is to be expected in these tense situations. So on the one hand, you have workers, as Lid described, that are so sensitive that they would pick up any nuance of limitation on their rights, but on the other hand, are such 
tinderboxes that they'll explode with racist and sexist language at the drop of a hat. For me, what makes this case really important is that workers' rights or the NLRB's current version of workers' rights seems to be the preeminent law of the land. And employers, it's just too bad. You're going to have to deal with the fact that there might be conflict with Title VII or state fair employment laws. I think this is a kind of breathtaking overreach. And I think it's certain to be challenged in the courts. On an administration level, this is certain to reopen the breach between the EEOC and the NLRB and with many members of Congress who are traditional supporters of labor, they have their own concerns about this kind of a decision. And we'll see what the outcome is. But I think the clearest vision we have into what this NLRB thinks of where its laws are with respect to all others. Well, I can speak for two former EEOC commissioners and one vice chair of the EEOC who spoke at an institute for workplace equality meeting, raising very grave concerns about this because they see this kind of behavior not only being violating Title VII, but also the prior case, which is about to come down, that would no longer allow confidential investigations into these kinds of issues. And so I think there is grave concern about where this is going. So not to belabor the point, our uh, general counsel, Abruzzo, who is very aggressive in her approach, also thinks that employees should have much expanded remedies, Liz. And can you just kind of give us an idea of what those were and what they might be in the future? Yeah, this is another area that, hearkening back to what Bert referenced before, can the board do this? Here's, we're in another area of can the board do this where they're trying to expand the remedies? So under the statute, employees are entitled to make whole remedies. Traditionally, that has been reinstatement and back pay. The board is expanding that scope, and they're expanding it a little bit in a remedial way. But they're also extensively, I believe, going into a punitive manner that is going beyond what is a make whole relief. So beyond the traditional reinstatement and back pay, in Noah's Ark, a decision recently came out, they imposed also reimbursement for costs associated with temporary job loss medical bills that are not covered by insurance that would have been had you been um, still employed, payment of additional union expenses and other costs uh, based on collective bargaining. So while I think there's an argument that those are make whole relief because it's remedies to the employee, the interesting point and the part is, can the board do this? It goes into punitive. For example, series of public shamings in these board decisions where executives are having to read an apology or read the policy publicly, public statements of their policies, which in my impression, I think that is going beyond a make whole relief and removing from remedial into punitive. Well, I think, Bert, let's talk about the CEO who's supposed (laughs) to read that apology. And that brings us to Starbucks, our poster child for NLRB. Yeah, this kind of takes us back to Mao's cultural revolution and public re-education. It's kind of startling. But, you know, Starbucks is the place where 
most of the remedies and measures that Liz just described came. There are over 500 unfair labor practices. There are nearly that many union organizing petitions. And just all of them are being challenged by Starbucks, every single one. The the courts are going to be, well, the board first and the courts are going to be flooded with these cases. And the few ones that have come to court have been given a rather skeptical review by the appellate courts. There's a famous case with the so-called Memphis 7 about reinstatement. Well, it claimed that the termination of these employees uh, chilled the union. Well, the union overwhelmingly won the election. And the court saying, well, what the heck's the remedy when you won? So a lot of these cases are to forward a NLRB political position, and some of the courts are being rather skeptical. For me, the most important cases are the ones where Starbucks is charging that the NLRB itself was involved in election misconduct, essentially putting the supposedly neutral thumb of the NLRB onto the union scale during an election. Everybody expects the NLRB, the board itself, to be a highly politicized entity. Nobody has ever experienced board representatives at the local level during an election taking a biased view, and that is what's being claimed. Recently, the Second Circuit, which is a very respected court, uh, permitted Starbucks to subpoena internal communications at a union during an election, which has the possibility of revealing NLRB involvement, which would be misconduct. I think this is a very big deal, and so does the House. And you can be sure that the House Health Committee is going to be holding hearings on exactly this issue. And there's one other thing that, you know, labor law is both for managers and unions. And sometimes the worm turns. There are at least three and more coming cases in which local Starbucks stores are seeking to decertify the union. And that just adds to the burden on the NLRB. It adds to the burden on the unions. But we'll see how those come out because these stores are quite small and a shift of four or five voters can put the union in or put the union out and uh, will remain to be seen. But Starbucks will be featured at the NLRB for probably the rest of this administration, no matter how long this administration lasts. One of the things we know is that there has been an attempt by the House Republicans to subpoena that very information that you were talking about, Bert from the NLRB, and I know they are fighting that fight. That always gets a little bit tricky when it's between, you know, different parts of the government. But, you know, ethics has also been a really big part, uh, ethics in government, shall we say, has been a big conversation in the front pages of the paper lately. And so (laughs) we know that there have been some issues even within the board. And Liz, can you just talk a little bit about what some of those ethics issues raised have been? Yeah, one of the key ones is who can participate in a decision and when is there a conflict of interest and somebody needs to accuse themselves? So under the prior administration, uh, Member Emanuel had his vote rescinded from participating in a case. It's kind of a controversial case, but his vote couldn't count because someone in his law firm represented one of the affected parties. Sort of setting somewhat of a standard there. 
However, recently, David Prouty, a current board member, was the general counsel for one of SEIU's largest locals. However, when a case arose involving SEIU's national organizing arm and the Fight for 15 initiative, the board, with Prouty voting, found that Prouty had no ethical conflict or reason to recuse himself from voting on the case. What's about kind of in the wings here waiting to be decided is a challenge to the NLRB member Gwen Wilcox, whose former law firm represented the fight for 15 advocates before she joined the board in 2021. So watch for hearings on that issue about whether she is going to be required to recuse herself. But I think setting some consistency um, in the recusal requirements goes back to the concept that, you know, Bert mentioned before is shouldn't the board be a bit of a neutral party and looking to see where those decisions come out. And I think that goes to ethics. Let me just add one thing. You know, traditionally, everybody has acknowledged that the people appointed to the board represent unions or represent managers. Wilma Liebman, who was board chair for years, was the former general counsel of the Teamsters. It was just, you know, it, it was in the air. This idea of challenging board members because of their prior affiliations is really like a circular firing squad. And we kind of don't know where it's going to end. I think member Emanuel came from a thousand member law firm. He didn't even know the case was being tried. Member Wilcox comes from a 15-person law firm and was involved in the case. So we will see what happens when this comes before the board. Well, our time's about out here after a great discussion. So let's just take a few takeaways that we want people to leave with. Liz, you want to kick that off? Yeah, I think the most important in my mind is employers who do not have a union believe that there's a union nowhere near them and are not suspecting any union activity you still really need to pay attention. The board is looking at your policies, your procedures. You could inadvertently end up with an unfair labor practice, and that's going to get a union's attention. So by not paying attention to this, you could walk yourselves into a union activity. Absolutely. Bert? I'll go back to what I mentioned earlier. It appears from the decisions that this NLRB believe Section 7, which protects concerted activity in support of workers, is the preeminent law of the workplace. It trumps all other laws. And the only caveat I can put forward is the courts may not agree. Well, I'm going to have the final word. And my final word is that once again, EEOC clearly is very concerned about the actions of the board and the impact it's going to have on investigations as well as terminations of employees. And so with that, Liz, Bert, thank you so much for yet another great podcast. And uh, please join us and sign up wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone. We look forward to the next update. For those that would like to connect with any of the lawyers from Fortney Scott, please reach out to them directly by visiting FortneyScott.com. On the website, you can also listen to previous podcast episodes, as well as pick up your copy of the DC Insider Report and sign up for future updates. Thanks so much for listening.